Know Your Enemies and Know Your Friends, a study of the book of Hebrews. We've been looking at different dangers that are unique to Christians, how you can drift away, just imagining that everything is fine without any paddling, how we can turn away from the Lord, how we cannot put in every effort. And today, uh, you might remember from our last conversation that we had ended with kind of this hanging thought where the writer to the Hebrews wanted to talk about Melchizedek, a name that may not be familiar to you, but it was something that he knew was very important for his audience's understanding of God's design, God's plan for them. But then he said, oh, I can't tell you about Melchizedek right now because, and that's what we're going to talk about today, which will then bring us to another danger that Christians so easily face. And that will be helpful for us to know, as we wish, as God's children, to be on his side, to, to be fighting against all of the dangers that threaten us. If you can recall, as a Christian, spiritual conversations you've had with people who are not Christian, and they've asked you questions and you've had some back and forth, have there ever been moments where you just don't know what to say next? where you feel unqualified to answer what they're asking. If that has ever happened to you, maybe it's because you just don't recall a particular Bible verse that would have been a great answer to that question, or maybe they just flat out challenge something that you have always assumed as everybody knows is true. You might feel that if you just did a little bit more Bible study, then you would have everything that you would need to be able to answer those questions. Now that is absolutely a beneficial thing. And you might get the sense when we read about the, the writer to the Hebrews feels as a concern on his part for the people that this must be their problem. That they don't have all of the information they need to answer some of those challenging questions that an unbeliever can ask. Well, that is a noble goal to be better and better prepared to answer those questions. Let's find out what the writer to the Hebrews presents as the grave danger that Christians are facing. So here we go. Chapter 5, starting in verse 11. Recall that he was going to say something about Melchizedek, but now he says, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So the writer to the Hebrews here wants to say more about Jesus as the high priest. And Melchizedek is his way of doing that. But he stops talking because there's a problem. You are the spiritual doctor. What are the symptoms of this problem? You think through verses 11 to 14 again of chapter 5. You look at them in your Bibles. What, what is the problem? Well, a spiritual doctor would say, first of all, that he had expectations by this point that they should be teachers. But they needed the elementary stuff taught to them all over again. 
They should have been ready to eat solid food, so not baby in their Christianity, but mature, but they were still in need of milk. You might also say that they didn't have a good grasp on distinguishing between those things that were spiritually beneficial and those things that were spiritually harmful. So they weren't distinguishing between good and evil. So there was an immaturity. They should have been ready for solid food, but they weren't. They weren't capable of properly distinguishing between what was good for them and what was not good for them. Think about that last part, the distinguishing good from evil. Have there been areas in your life where you've found it difficult to distinguish between what is spiritually beneficial and what is spiritually harmful? Are there questions you have, for example, um, maybe it's in regard to media consumption, where you watch a television show and to be honest, you're not really being very careful about whether what you're watching is something that is spiritually good for you or not good for you. In fact, when you watch that show or you watch a movie, in some ways maybe you're saying, the word of God's out of my mind right now, just being entertained. So that one of the features that we could maybe even personally acknowledge is that immaturity, Christian immaturity, can be shown by not properly distinguishing from good and evil in what we see with our eyes. Maybe it's in the world of politics. Like we know that there is some legitimate space where people can have different opinions, but are there times when maybe you're not as sensitive to, wait a second, like it's wrong to do this. Where breaking the eighth commandment, for example, giving the impression someone is guilty of something when they're really not guilty of it, or assuming the worst about what someone says instead of taking their words in the kindest possible way. Like is it, do we become kind of hardened to not even thinking anymore about like, Is that matching what God would say is right? Or there may be a number of different places in your life where you could say, okay, yeah, I get that. I'm not sure if I'm always the best judge of what's good and what's not good, what's spiritually beneficial and what's not spiritually beneficial. Well, the writer to the Hebrews says that's one of the problems that the people he's ministering to are struggling with, an immaturity, uh, not capable of doing something they should be able to do, teach, and they're not distinguishing between good and evil properly. Now, he has more to say about this. In in fact, uh, he goes on now, therefore, let let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment and God permitting, we will do so. What he says is, we've got to move past where you're at right now. Basic teachings onto, what would we say? Something that is more advanced In this section, we learn what counts in the writer to the Hebrews mind of not solid food. So baby in one's faith, solid food is what's needed. What isn't solid food? Well, he talks about repentance and faith and baptisms, probably like ceremonial washings of the Jews and then the actual actual baptism. 
uh, laying on of hands, which would be designated people for public service, sharing the word of God, teaching, being a pastor or something like that, resurrection of the dead, final judgment. If those things are not solid food, like what's left? <laughs> what, what is solid food? Our instinct may go most quickly to something like sanctification. Maybe like what he's saying is you need to be active in your faith. You need to show love. You need to be active in the community. You need to move beyond just these concepts and get to reality, get to solid, like action stuff, right? If, if that's maybe where your head goes when you think of what maturity could be, let's, let's hold that thought for just a moment. We, we know that there's a problem with these Christians. We know that there's immaturity involved. We know that they're not distinguishing between what is spiritually beneficial and what isn't spiritually beneficial. And we know that there are teachings of the Bible that are important, but they, there's something more. Now, when you heard that list about repentance and faith and resurrection and judgment, there may have been a part of you that thought, Wow, like I thought those were fundamental, foundational, the core. And for right now, let's just kind of hold that thought. You're right. It seems that those would be the ones we'd want in focus. But there's something that he is leading to here. Let's go to verses four to eight. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God. We're talking about Christians, right? Who have received all of these blessings through the word of God and the powers of the coming age. If they fall away to be brought back to repentance and then as to their loss, they are crucifying the son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. It is possible for a Christian to be crucifying all over again Jesus. And as a consequence, they are not able to come to repentance. Have you ever considered that as a possibility? I mean, I, I think we know that it's not right to commit a sin and then be thinking, well, you know, I know the Lord is going to forgive me for this, so it's not that big a deal. I'll repent. I'll say I'm sorry. The Lord is saying here that things can play out in a way where you can't say you're sorry. Humans do not have that power. It can happen as one thinks of Christ in a wrong way, crucifies him again, despises him, shames him, that a, a Christian can lose their faith. So, He's telling us that individuals are not being renewed, made new again, when they are in the process of crucifying Christ all over again. Now you might think of yourself and say, I would never do that. I would never crucify Christ. In fact, in what ways can Christians be tempted to do just this? And in some ways, isn't it any time that we fall into a sin? where we will say, with regard to what we watch, like, I don't care if this is something that I would be comfortable having Jesus sit right next to me and watch. Um, it's funny. Like, this is a really good movie. 
I mean, in the end, what was it that those who crucified Christ did? They said that his words were not worth listening to, that the one he claimed to be was not really who he was, that if he insisted on continuing to insist on having a place in my life, then I'm going to get rid of him because he's a fraud. He's not someone that I need to pay attention to or value highly. I mean, what is it that we are saying when, when we live as if the perspective of Jesus is not important? If it's because I'm struggling with the sin of greed and I'm saying that Jesus is not, a, that 30 pieces of silver is more valuable to me than the person of Jesus Christ. Like, is, is it possible because of our sinning that we are communicating that in fact Christ is not very valuable to us? And as a Christian, when others see us sin, what do they think about Jesus? And if we are comfortable with that sin and we'd even defend that sin and we'd insist on continuing in that sin, there is a part of us that would wish to think that we would never be capable of crucifying Jesus. The writer to the Hebrews was saying to his fellow Christians who were struggling with this immaturity, they had grown content in where they were at. They were not distinguishing good from evil. They were tempted to live a life that was crucifying Christ. And so they are being told now, it can happen that repentance will not be possible. If that makes your heart drop, if you're thinking, what if that's me? Listen to what the writer to the Hebrews says next. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you helped his people and continue to help them. That might seem impossible. For the Holy Spirit to ask Christians to consider this horrific reality that they can live in a way which can keep them from repentance and to be told that I'm, I'm sure that this is not the case with you. I know you love Jesus. If that brings you relief, that that can happen, that people can be weak in their faith, they can be immature in their faith, and yet they can still be a Christian. That then would properly have us ask, so why did he just talk the way that he did. If the first part of verse 9 is true, where he says, we're confident of better things in your case, then why has the writer to the Hebrews spoken like this, as in verses 4 to 8, where it's impossible for those who have been enlightened to come to repentance as they are crucifying Christ? Why would God talk that way to Christians? He wants us to know that this can happen to us. He wants us to understand how close we are to denying Jesus. He wants to under help us understand how dangerous it is to feel comfortable with, with our sin. It's almost, it's almost like we feel we can take Jesus and our faith in Jesus and put that in a lock-solid box and put it up here in our, 
in our mind and then simultaneously be doing something that we ourselves know is wrong and maybe we've been told by our parents or Christian friends or that it's wrong and we'll insist like I still love Jesus I still think that he's very special important he's my savior but oh, the Holy Spirit so much wants us to know that every one of our sins is an assault on Jesus and that we need to know about this because we can't become comfortable living this in a way double life it really is a single life and it's a rejection of Christ the Holy Spirit wants his children to know that this is not right for you to hear for me to hear and and now he goes on to talk about you might remember from the very beginning that he said we can't talk we've got much to say about Melchizedek but we can't go on right now because you are slow to learn the word is sluggish you are sluggish and and now he brings that word in again verse 11 we want each of you to show this this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure we do not want you to become lazy but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised sluggish lazy we don't want you to become lazy but so what is the opposite of being sluggish or being lazy in our relationship to God? Well, not become lazy, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When you hear, don't be lazy, you might be thinking, okay, again, I've got to be more active in my faith. I have to go out and be a blessing to my community. I have to all of those things are wonderful things of course but that is not at all what the writer to the hebrews is talking about what does he say is the opposite of sluggish and lazy imitating those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised the opposite of lazy sluggish is trust it's patience and it's hanging on to that which God has promised us, eternal life. Oh, wait a second. So I thought that repentance and faith and resurrection and judgment, that those were the elementary teachings. So this is, he uses the word faith again. How can it be elementary and the thing that we ought to strive for? What, what's going on here? Are there elementary kind of bottom line functions of the very important teachings of repentance and faith and resurrection and judgment those are so fundamental what the writer to the hebrews is saying is that christians can forget something they can forget that they have an absolute promise from god for their future and that in every respect in life they can be thinking about that and they can be trusting God and they can be patient as they go through the challenges of this life what is true about this hope we have this eternal promised heaven well 
having said that we are to imitate those who uh, inherit what has been promised, the first one that jumps out as far as an example to imitate is, well, Abraham is mentioned next. And so God talks about how him promising Abraham. This is, in fact, he swore, I'm going to bless you. And sure enough, years later, Abraham saw the blessing. He was given the gift of a child who would then be the ancestor of the promised Savior. When, when we think about trusting something God has promised us, we only need to think about people in the past who have been promised something by God who have trusted him. And God on his side is trying to say, I am so trustworthy. I swear. Now, when we hear the word swear, we think about people in a courtroom saying, I swear, right, to God. They're calling upon God as their witness. Like, God, punish me if I lie. So here is God swearing. You're saying God can't swear by himself. And like at some level, that doesn't make sense, does it? Swearing, but he does it. He swears by himself. And the way he explains it is God did this swear by himself so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may be greatly encouraged God wants to double and triple and quadruple down on the fact that he will never, ever, 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 ever break a promise. You so much want something you can be sure of. You are running to take hold of this hope that God has promised you. And you have that hope. The writer to the Hebrews says, we have that hope as an anchor for our souls. That future confidence is the thing that we put the anchor into. It sticks in it. And where is that anchor placed? He says, it's the anchor for our soul and it is firm and secure. And verse 19, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. It goes into the Holy of Holies in the temple behind the curtain where the Ark of the Covenant was located where a priest would go in once a year and sprinkle blood on top of that ark so that he would not be killed when he came into the presence of God in that place, that one must be perfect to stand in the presence of God. But sinners, we, you, I are not perfect. But blood, when we carry blood, when the priest carried blood, which anticipated the coming of Jesus, our Savior, who made himself our sacrifice, his blood became the thing that paid the price for all of our guilt. His blood makes it possible for you to have a hope, a certain hope, the confidence that you will be with the Lord forever in heaven. Trust, and while you wait, be patient. Jesus went into that most holy place for you. He is your high priest. He's in the Order of Melchizedek, and that was the name he wanted to talk about, but he had to take this detour, and he's going to talk about it again next time. But for now, if you've ever heard it said, Christians are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. And if what's that, what that's been all about is having ideas and being able to explain God, but not understanding any connection with our regular life, you know, then I suppose it's possible for someone to be so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good, but properly understood. 
you will be of absolutely no earthly good unless you are heavenly minded. That's what the writer to the Hebrews is highlighting here. That the only thing that gives us a path through this earthly life is when we are getting our anchor firmly stuck, our hope, that which keeps the rest of our life in place, our eternal future, when that is solidly stuck in the fact that Jesus Christ is my Savior, He is your Savior, we are perfect in the sight of God. That is maturity. <laughs> You're thinking, wait a second, I, like I was thinking that maturity must be something about living a sanctified life, and, and obviously that always naturally flows. But what the Hebrew Christians were struggling with was they were not properly valuing Jesus. They were not remembering that he is at the heart of everything that we are and everything that we do. In fact, having that eternal hope is central to distinguishing between what is spiritually beneficial and what is not spiritually beneficial. Fighting any temptation. I'd say how? Like if you're interested in growing in your spiritual maturity and you can think of a time when, yeah, I really wasn't trusting then or, yep, I was suffering and I was not patient. How is it that the peace you have with God because of heaven through Jesus is central to a spiritual challenge like that? You might say, like, I'm really having a difficult time trusting that God is going to work all of this out for my good. Maybe... Maybe you are suffering because of a health challenge. At the heart of your battle against whatever weakness you are struggling with is the fact that one day you will struggle no more. You will be in heaven. And you do not need to be afraid of any bump in the road on the way there. You're heading there. You're still moving full speed ahead. What about a temptation to be greedy? What, what place does, for a spiritually mature perspective, what place does that eternal hope that I have, which is anchored in the blood of Jesus, how does that help me with my struggle to, I just so much want that thing. And, and, I, and I'll admit it, I've put God in second place or maybe fifth place for a while, but I really, really want that Wow, to, to know that your, your eternal hope is anchored firmly in the future. Like, what is money? What are earthly things? They can be blessings. God can use them to bring you joy or to bring blessing to others. But in the end, what gives you confidence and excitement to go forward is you're, you're walking toward heaven. Maybe it's, maybe it's something where you're just so, so busy. Like, as a Christian... And you want to do with the things that are pleasing to God, but you feel overwhelmed and that leads you to feel frustrated and it leads you to show something less than love toward those who really need your love at that moment. What if you remembered that you are never going to die? Like, you're not running out of time. Right? Your eternity has already begun. I mean, it's true that we only have a certain amount of time while we are here on this earth and God is the one who determines that, but you're going to live forever. 
you can, with that perspective and firmly in the blood of Jesus, that's why you know you're going to get there. You can look at the busyness of your schedule and say, okay, like I'm busy. I've got a lot of things to do. I'm going to have to make some choices. But the one thing that I don't need to be is frustrated. The one thing I don't need to do is feel reluctant to show my love to someone else using time because I'm going to live forever. Christ. Understanding the nature of Christ and specifically how he is like the high priest Melchizedek, which we haven't talked about yet. But that is, that is at the heart of what it means to be spiritually mature. That you are growing in your appreciation of just how significant Jesus is to everything in your life. There is more to this story. We need to talk about just what kind of a high priest Jesus is when he's like Melchizedek. But we will save that for another time. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us always value Jesus as the center of everything, the object of our faith, and the reassurance that we have eternal hope in heaven. And then help us never forget heaven as we go through all of the challenging moments on this earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.